When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, I'm joined by the fabulous Pete Perfides, a journalist who started his career at Melody Maker before going on to write for Time Out, The Guardian, Mojo Q, Observer Music Monthly, and The Times, where he spent five years as their chief music critic. He's presented radio shows aplenty, has his very own Weller playlist on Spotify, and last year published his first book, a memoir about childhood and music called Broken Greek, which I highly recommend. Check it out. It is magical. So strap in for my chat with Pete, some amazing Weller-related stories is coming up, including the most epic kebab in music and potentially culinary history. Let's get into it. Hi, Pete. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dan. Lovely to be here. What better way to spend some time than talking about Paul Weller? Because I know that you're a massive fan as well. But first of all, I want to kick off because the, the room that you're in is the room with the famous vinyl collection. Haven't you got like an insane vinyl collection that's worth like a million quid or something ridiculous? Uh, and- no, it's not. I mean, it, no. Well, I've got my wife to blame for that. I think the Times did a piece on record collecting where they interviewed me. The journalist who did the piece forgot to ask me what my record collection was worth and so they asked my my wife Kathleen who's a columnist for the Times her editor said oh by the way how much is Pete's record collection worth and she just plucked a random figure out of (laughs) mid-air which was not a million pounds but I think somehow along the line it's become exaggerated I mean (laughs) most of my records no one would want them you know I've got got weird I've got kind of straight dubious taste in many respects and Paul Weller being the exception to a lot of the stuff I've got but this isn't the room this is the over spill room actually oh, right. so wow. what you can see over here in, in our little in our zoom call is uh i've had to move my 12 inch singles out to the shed because there was no longer any room for them in the main record so this is my office 
come shed. Trust me, people, this is a this is a collection. Now, I read this lovely quote, which I thought would be a nice way to kick off from you, which was, if you were lucky enough to start buying records in the days of the jam, you will have spent most of your life in correspondence with Paul Weller, which is just such a lovely turn of phrase, because that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, I mean, I've really got my brother and uh, there was a girl that lived next door who's four years older than me, as was my brother, to thank, because it was through them that I got a sense that Paul's music was not only great, but it was also kind of, it was kind of important. They treat it with great importance and to people of a certain age in a certain era it wasn't just that the records were, were great but he it was the the way he was looking at the world seemed to kind of tally with the way the world looked to us in my book which came out last year broken greek which is a sort of musical memoir i sort of talked about this with specific reference to well to two albums really to setting suns but maybe a little bit more uh, with more reference to sound effects and i really felt like he just noticed the details of suburban life and the kind of expectations that society and your immediate kind of sometimes your immediate extended family have for you in a working class or lower middle class a sort of suburban existence sometimes that could be a frustrating thing but in that kind of quite straightened existence there are just moments of, of beauty and magic that you could never really explain to one of the posh kids in Eton Rifles but you don't you wouldn't want to anyway it's kind of there and you know and I think obviously there are certain songs that capture it well you know so that's entertainment obviously um Tan Called Malice a lot of those songs there's just a kind of magic in things that a lot of people would find ugly and I really related to that I really related to just long summer days in fairly anonymous conurbations, just kind of hanging around by the big industrial planters next to the new estate, talking about nothing. You know, girls in their sort of shop uniforms going to work in the Woolworths down the road with their name badges on already. And they looked like they could be in a band because it was the late 70s and kind of in the late 70s and early 80s. Everyone looked like a member of Bananarama, like, or at least a lot of girls did. <laughs> Paul was just seeing the world with the same eyes that I felt like me and my friends and my brother and my, his friends were seeing it. And you talk about in your book, you talk about the power of these songs for you coming out of the radio, coming out of the TV and, and the impacts that they had on you. Paul struck me as someone who didn't really seem, he didn't really care what you thought of him. And that gave him a lot of power. That gave him a kind of alpha power, which later on I would recognise in a lot of artists. Like a lot of my favourite artists, really, are the ones... I don't know what this says about my self-esteem, but I quite like artists that treat me mean to keep me keen. <laughs> uh, they're not scared that I'll like their next record. They'll make the record that they want. They're not going to take the piss. They're going to try and make the best record they can. But if you don't like it, then there we go. You know, early on with Paul, I just think you, you, could, you could see that even if you couldn't articulate it to yourself. It's almost like a vapor that comes off people almost like a an unspoken an attitude i think we all noticed it fairly early i remember that we all when going underground came out because eaton rifles was so good it was just a, a, a song that kind of captured a sort of way of looking at the world and a real you know it, was, it had this kind of chippiness which was really important to kind of feel that someone could sort of occupy their space from your social class in such an assured way and lyrically he's like you know obviously um sup up your beer and collect your fags there's a rag going on down your slab is probably the greatest opening line gambit of all time possibly who knows certainly up there so he had that thing that the Beatles had, of course, which was he wasn't trying to remake his last single. You sort of knew that going underground, it was just in the air that we would go in at number one. It was the first song I can remember. Other songs had gone in at number one before, but it was the first song I remember I'd be 
knowing that being conscious of that happening. And so my brother got it the week it came out and his friend who in the book I've called Edward, that's not his real name. Uh, <laughs> oh, I bloody loved Edward. <laughs> oh yeah, Edward exists. He's just not... <laughs> my favourite thing about him was his name. <laughs> I had to change the names of uh, people I couldn't get hold of beforehand just in case they object. Yeah, yeah. Jed is her name. Jed, the girl next door. We just sat there reverently, which is that great thing that happens when someone releases a single a moment where they are sort of culturally, they're kind of subculturally an important person. And, you know, the people are kind of, you know, it was like Bob Dylan in the 60s, wasn't it? You know, it was just certain people kind of get that. And so you knew and the fact that going underground, it was just a completely different thing already. And then um, we put the other side on. Dreams of Children was really the first time I heard, I didn't know I was listening to something that was probably psychedelic, but it kind of corresponded to that kind of, the Dreams of Children is obviously a perfect title for it because it, that kind of slightly, um, you know, when you're a child, you have memories that you're not quite sure if they're real or whether or not they're dreams. And it felt like it was sort of tapping into that world between one and the other. He kept doing that. Obviously, we, you know and I know that he kept doing that. And one of the great things about my current life is watching well, my youngest daughter in particular, who's 17, has really sort of adores Paul's music. He's, you know, currently really caning sound effects. Oh, brilliant. And uh, she plays different instruments and, um, you know, she loves the Beatles. So she loves the bass line of Star, the fact that it's the bass line of Taxman. And, you know, she understands it in a way that I remember at the time, you know, music journalists in their naivety sort of being a little bit like he's stolen the bass line to Taxman as if he didn't know that that was about, as if like he thought that we wouldn't notice. The whole point about Star obviously, is that it's a song about how a pop song can make you feel. It's a love letter to what pop can do. I'm quite impressed to see that my daughter figured that out. A, a lot quicker than a lot of music journalists did in the, uh, in the <laughs> well she's got good grounding from your from her parents to be fair in that in that area the great thing is i'm not a musician she's a musician so she kind of she comes at things from a more musical perspective so okay i might have brought that stuff into the house but she has an understanding of it that's quite different that's lovely now um one of the key things for me obviously on this podcast is the ambition the dream to finally meet paul and spend time at black barn and have a conversation and <laughs> and that interview that's eluded me tell me about the first time you met paul yeah this is like a learning experience for me this is like basically like a guardian masterclass for free the first time that you interviewed him in 2005 you're in the offices of what was his then record label was v2 which i think was like a substitute virgin if i remember rightly shortly after the release of as is now you're worried that you've overstepped the line on this interview cock things up right so what happened yeah he was uh his son nat was doing work experience at, at v2 at the time i didn't know there was no way you could guess that this was paul's son because he was like a goth he was like an emo kind of goth kid you know he looked amazing he had magnificent kind of makeup on and i think he straightened his hair which i think was dyed black with you know, he straightened it with tongs and stuff i couldn't work out why this work this intern was kind of hanging around a bit too lingering a bit too long in the room that where our interview was happening and then eventually um paul said oh yeah, Pete, that's my son, that, you know. Yeah, and um, and I just started laughing because I just thought it was so hilarious that it looked like kind of Marilyn Manson's younger brother, you know. It didn't look like Paul's son. And it was just wonderful. And the the, the, the rapport between them was lovely and warm and tender. And it was just a little, little moment where, because I'd not met Paul before, it was just this moment where I sort of, I was just in a room with a father and his son. And it was just so lovely that he found him funny. His bearing around him was kind of quite tender as it would be because he's it's just a dad and a son but i just i wrote the piece and i thought well i'm gonna say it. i can't remember what exactly i said but i sort of said you know sort of like i was trying not to laugh and stuff so it's a little bit irreverent compared
read to a lot of pieces about Paul and I was really quite worried about it and when it ran I thought that he might, I might have overstepped the line and I was really worried when his PR called me and said Paul wants to speak to you Paul Senior <laughs> wants to speak to you and um, is it alright if I give him your number I was like yeah of course you know and I was just so, I was quite worried because you know you don't want one of your heroes to be pissed off with you, right. you know, so- and you have heard stories of him kind of ringing journalists <laughs> and giving them a bollocking as well you? In, in the early 90s he, yeah. he infamously offered a journalist out David Quantic he told him that suggested <laughs> they kind of sort it out like men in, in- <laughs> I've invited David onto the podcast oh no <laughs> I think it's fine now I think it's all kind right. of all like I think everyone finds it quite funny <laughs> sure. uh, David's a fan I think yeah. so Wella's going to ring you up so what happens he rings me up and I'd forgotten that I would often bring a compilation that I, I always thought that was quite a good thing to do if you interview a musician especially when you interview a really famous musician because I was working for the Times at the time and often when you're doing writing about musicians for a newspaper you know newspapers want to get get their news angle so often they're interested in the kind of the celebrity aspect of the person that you're interviewing and I understand that also I, I do think that a musician shouldn't really have to engage on that level if they don't want to they're there because they're a musician but i write about music because i've been a record collector all my life and that's kind of why i'm there that's why i get to meet these people anyway so i've done it for loads of people i've done it for everyone from beyonce to mcfly and so i, I did it with paul and i don't really expect them to listen to, to these things but i just think it's like a nice thing to do and and actually paul rang for two reasons he said first of all he thought the feature was funny and, and he, liked, he, liked, he liked the piece which was really nice you know um really lovely of him to do that and secondly um yeah he really liked the cd i made him and uh he wanted to know what a couple of uh songs were in particular i think maybe i didn't put who who the tracks were by or maybe i was trying to be mysterious or something and uh, <laughs> there was a song by richard hawley he didn't really know too much about richard hawley at that point and uh, i'd put a track from cole's corner the richard hawley album called cole's corner they might have worked together since and there was a track called the curse of ham by an american no longer with us an american singer songwriter called ernie payne which we really it's very yearning sort of bluesy ballad and that really sort of struck a chord with him so those were, i remember those were the two songs that he wanted to know a little bit more about and so um i thought that was really nice and that, i thought well that's that you know that's you know really touched by the fact that he kind of went to the trouble of doing that and then a couple of weeks later i was at a friend's house and my kids were really young at that point so I was in a world of play dates and all that stuff. And my kids, uh, I was at someone's house and my phone rang and I looked at the number and it was Paul. And I said to uh, Romilly, the woman who, whose house I was in, so Romilly, I've got to take this because I think it's Paul Weller. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> they said, right, Pete, um, is Paul Weller here? I know. It. <laughs> uh, uh, listen, I've been thinking about you know, like you made those CDs you made for me at that and that. And like, uh, you know, I'm doing this gig at, at Ali Pali in a couple of weeks time. And I was wondering if you wanted to DJ at the gig. And I was a bit shocked. And so I paused. This is the bit I remember. I think he took my pause as like, like I was thinking about it or something, you know. And so he kind of, at that point, he felt the need to, obviously I'll pay you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the concern was, hold on, yeah. is this a freebie or what? You want me to, well, hmm, what are you paying, Paul? <laughs> are we talking equity rate or what? So I said, like, 
I'll do. I'll do. Look, the pay is not. You know, I do. You don't. You don't need to pay me. And uh, of course, I'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so DJ that that uh, that was just a really nice thing to do. You know, he just sort of like, and he sort of, uh, and he. But the, the great thing was, I thought I'd established that. Oh, you know, I don't want to be paid. I know what he's doing. It, it, it was a really, it's a kind of professional courtesy. And it's a really good thing to do. Whenever I enlist the services of people who might not necessarily expect to be paid, I always pay them. And so I know what he was trying to do, but I, I can't, I'm not going to accept money from playing records at his gig, you know. So that's that. It went really well. It was a great gig. Two days later, the phone rings again. Oh, it's Paul again. <laughs> All right, Pete, uh, where, I've, got, I've got this check I've made out to you. Where do you want me to send it? <laughs> that's brilliant. Absolutely. Well, brilliant. That says a lot. Does that say a lot about him? That says, uh, that's the mark of the man, you know. When you were at Black Barn one Christmas as well. So I did a series of interviews going up to the release of Sonic Kick. Because that was for a Mojo cover story. So, good thing about Paul, Paul understands, which a lot of people, com- people of a comparable profile, do not understand that in order to get a good article around a, a release, you need to give access. And in the seventies, everyone seemed to sort of understand that access wasn't an issue. But in the kind of celebrity era, understandably, again, well-known artists restrict that access. But you get, you do get a lot of access when you interview Paul, as long as he kind of knows that you're not going to sort of take the piss. I did an interview on the last day before they kind of shut up. Christmas, I think this was what 2012 or something or 2011, mm-hmm. and um, and he just came in with a big bag of um presents that he got from everybody. He had like loads of Selfridges bags. I remember the big yellow Selfridges bags, anyway. He may as well have had a Father Christmas outfit, <laughs> and I know he goes to Selfridges because I've seen him in Selfridges a couple of times. I didn't bother him, I think I, I saw him outside waiting for a cab once at Selfridges. I remember that, but yeah, so I know he goes there and um, he just got presents for everyone. And um, what he's got right about Black Barn is it's just a place that you really enjoy hanging around, it's a really good hangout. He constantly makes tea for people, he's like the, the main tea maker at Black Barn. <laughs> constantly be asked it's a place where you feel very comfortable when you're there you know another time i went to black barn it was actually for a very early playback of sonic kicks i'm just looking to uh looking at the track listing i'm trying to remember what songs we had and it was very early because i remember that initially i think was it Starlight, the standalone single that mm. came out? Initially, that was going to be on the record. And so when we were played it, that was on the track listing initially. And he changed his mind. And I remember that one very clearly because that's the other thing about Paul. He's very, he's like very funny, you know. And when, when I was little, I didn't really think of him as a funny person. I turned up at that one. I can't, I got off at the train station about three miles away and I had one of those foldable Brompton bites. Most of the people had already arrived and I turned up. I just rolled into the driveway on my little Brompton and he thought that was the funniest thing you'd ever seen he just just looked at it and he looked at me and said uh does your daughter know you've you've taken her bike? Because it just looked like the little wheel. It looked like to him, it looked like a child's bike. Sort of tickled by that. Was that the Sonic Kicks? I'm trying to remember. No, actually. So that was those were some interviews I did for Sonic Kicks. But before that was the the Twenty Two Dreams. Twenty Two Dreams was a funny one because um, again he was um, we kind of exchanged quite a few texts and stuff around as is now. You know he kind of he's a he's a big one for kind of if he does it with me, I'm sure he must do it with dozens of people. He uh, if he's heard a record that he loves and he thinks you'll really love it, he'll text people he knows and rave about them. And because I really loved as is now, as is now, I think he's such an underrated record in his canon. 
it was like the end of an era because it was the last one that had Steve White on it. But um, it's just a lovely sounding record. And, you know, they're really firing off each other in the music. In a way, I can sort of see why he kind of chose to end that liaison there because it's a nice point at which to end it in some ways. But anyway, 22 Dreams. I knew that he was working on something quite grand, quite different. Obviously, he, he was with different musicians all of a sudden. He sent me about a year before the album came out two songs in demo form he sent me wild walk when you can run and light nights i think he was just kind of feeling around to see but that i think those were the parameters the sonic parameters of of the record that he was possibly sort of thinking of making so he sent those demos of him displaying them in the house or something he's very good like that i think once he kind of knows that you're just like a fan and a collector he will just engage with you on that level. And actually, I get that, you know, a lot of musicians uh, are like that. You know, I think actually, I think as journalists, often we um, we forget how much we have in common with musicians. We're all just fans just trying to sort of figure out a way of expressing our love for this stuff. But in, they do it through making music and a lot of us do it through writing about it. And so I've noticed with Paul, the journalists that he's kind of kept in touch with over the years are the ones that are just basically record collectors as well. So Lois Wilson, a fantastic writer um, from Mojo, longtime supporter of Paul's. These are the sorts of writers he sort of um, keeps in touch with. And anyway, so um, 22 Dreams was quite a special sort of time for me because, you know, I kind of felt like it, I kind of got, got a little bit of a glimmer into the process at the beginning of this kind of creation. And then a year later... It came out and, you know, it was kind of exceeded everyone's expectations. It was a really exciting time to be a fan of his. And I really wanted to write something about him to just to mark that point in the tour. And so the opportunity came on the last night of the UK tour. They played at Leicester de Montfort Hall. The other exciting thing actually about that time is that um, an old friend of mine joined his band. Andy Lewis was his bassist. And Andy Andy and I were, were at university together. That whole day, that whole 24-hour period in, in Leicester was just a very special like day because I got there and the first person I bumped into was Andy, uh, sort of backstage. And there was just a moment where like Andy, you know, like we we're both like music fans at university, you know, not knowing what life had in store for us. And there was just a moment where we were just sat in some kind of anteroom and we we're like, God, isn't it fucking weird? Like he we, look look what's happened, you know. <laughs> you know, Andy was you know, was a DJ, was playing he basically playing his blow up set at the student union at Lampeter in West Wales four or five years before blow up even existed, driving around West Wales in his Robin Reliant, you know, ever the mod even then. So of course he was going to end up in Weller's band, you know. <laughs> now it seems obvious. And it was a brilliant gig, and you know, I remember Nat joined him on stage for a bit, and that was really lovely. Paul looked kind of really Really kind of proud to see him on stage with him and then we all piled into the tour bus afterwards and um and i remember that went by it seemed to go by very quickly everyone started drinking hard and quickly straight away and there was just a real atmosphere of euphoria on the bus because it had been the last night the tour, the tour had gone well the album got to number one he was 50 years old now it was all really well received you know he was really a, a kind of creative and commercial zenith with a record that was really uncompromising and brilliant and imaginative. Mm. The great thing was, what did we listen to on the way back? Well, we listened... <laughs> with 22 Dreams, we put his own album on, is that right? We listened to 22 Dreams. <laughs> uh, and it, it was brilliant. I remember him like... And I put this in the feature, so I don't think... I know he doesn't mind, because he called me up about that feature as well. He had a bottle of beer in one hand. He was punching the air, singing along to one of the songs on 22 Dreams. But it wasn't... You know, like, you can describe that and you know maybe it sounds naff i don't know but actually if you were there 
it was just there was a real purity about it. It was a, and and he's like this actually. He's like this generally. He's like someone who was won a competition to be the lead singer in Paul Weller's band for a day, <laughs> and it, it, he just happens to be Paul Weller. You know, uh, he he just he hasn't sort of lost that. He's like Paul McCartney in some ways. He's always on. He's never fallen out of love with songwriting. Sure, there have been moments where it's not been as easy as others, but he's still clearly bewitched by the magic that happens when you can take nothing and turn it into something. And then it's there forever. Anyway, so going back to the bus, so it, it was just that we, and yet I managed to get what interview I could do on the bus whilst everyone's spirits were kind of getting higher and higher and, you know, a journey to sing along to his own songs. <laughs> <laughs> Sooner when we were in West London, and right, so the tour manager, who's obviously like all tour managers have to do, is running quite a tight ship. Paul doesn't live too far away from West London. The, 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 the plan is for the band to stay at the Holiday Inn, I think, on, on Shepherd's Bush uh, Roundabout. Mm-hmm. They're going to stay there for a night. And the reason for that is that the next day, the next morning, they have to go to the studios of Later. They're recording for Jules Holland, Later with Jules Holland, the next day. There's a room, I think there's a room booked for Paul if he wants it. But obviously, he lives quite nearby, so he could come back. But he's drunk, and t- he's already turned to me and said, uttered the immortal words, Pete, have you ever been to Kebab Machine? No, I haven't. You've never been to Kebab what, what is it? It's a kebab shop, but it's like it's better than all the other kebabs. I've been there. It is good. It is good. I could, yeah, well, they, I, well, I've sampled their wares now as well. <laughs> so his idea is that the, the tour bus should go. Everyone should go to the tour bus, should park outside kebab machine while Paul gets two kebabs, one for me and one for him. Tour manager like, to fuck that. Just, you, the band are going, the, the band need to sleep. And actually, you need to sleep as well. But if you want to get a kebab and then just make sure, you know, bottom line is, I mean, there's going to be a car waiting for you to take you to later at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. It's already two o'clock, you know. So that's what we're going to do. So we kind of roll out and um, Paul orders two kebabs. While he's waiting for his kebab, like a bunch of Roger Water fans, Roger Waters fans who've been to see him at the O2, recognize him. And he's immediately like posing. Suddenly he's like, Life and Soul of the Party, posing for photographs with these Roger Waters fans that kind of look like they've just kind of tumbled out of David and Sam Cameron's house. You couldn't be more different in a way, you know. He insists on ordering my kebab as well. And then the guy goes, how many chilies do you want on your kebab? And he says something, something ridiculous, like 10 or something. But he also then he, he very specifically asks for the amount in, in this kind of weird drunken logic, I don't know what it is. He specifies the amount I have to have on my kebab. And it's like about three less than his kebab. <laughs> So we kind of get into the cab and uh, we go to back, but, you know, not too far away. One good thing about Paul is he asks you a lot of questions about yourself. It's untypical of a lot of musicians, especially well-known ones. He says, so what are you two? Are you going to, how many kids you got then, Pete? So, so two, two. You going to have any more? So, no, I don't think we can really, because, you know, in terms of trying to kind of do our day jobs and stuff, two is about the maximum, really. For he said, oh, you should, you won't regret it. You know, like I'd, I'd just keep on having kids for the rest of my life if I could. Anyway, he sort of like rolls out, goes out the cab and I see him through the window opening his front door and then I sort of get to my house and then the taxi driver goes what are you going to do about your luggage I said I haven't got any luggage I've just got this shoulder bag there's like a massive suitcase I don't know maybe a guitar or something I can't remember in the boot and it's got he's just left all his luggage like three weeks of touring he's left it all <laughs> in the, so I have to sort of take it into my house and kind of take care of it of course he needs it for later tomorrow, tomorrow morning that leather jacket that really expensive looking leather jacket he was wearing at the yeah. time that was there as well and Catelyn and I are taking the kids to school uh, the following morning. They're walking the kids to school. And the car's already come to pick up Paul's luggage. And I'm saying to Catelyn, God knows what I'm go- I've got to watch later tonight because 
God knows what state he's about. Him, him and his band are going to be in. And at that moment, the phone rings, and it's Paul. And I can hear like music blaring out the background. And it's a CD. I'd made him another CD. It had a song. I remember there was a song that he was kind of crazy about. He mentioned this to me uh, like a few months ago called Soul Shake. It's by Peggy and Jojo Benson, I think. It's like an amazing kind of rattling um, soul track from the late 60s, like Southern Soul with like a sitar overlaid on top. It's really, really good. And he wanted to, you know, he was really kind of digging that. And he said, and then he sort of said, what do you think about that kebab last night? It sounds like I didn't really know what he was expecting me to. I, it's like a kebab, you know. But I said, yeah, it was, it was, it was okay. You know what? I think that is the best kebab I've ever had in my life it's just i can still taste it now but it was like it was like nothing could happen it's like it was like it was like he'd never had a hangover in his life he just sounded like completely delighted and happy and and i tuned in that night to watch him on later it was like a really good performance it was just no apparent downside you know he's knocked it on the i know he's knocked booze on the head since then and that's the real kind of that's a great thing about him as well you know i think he's one of these people that once he decides something that's it. He's, you know, he's still a good laugh to sort of spend time with. So Andy Lewis has been on the podcast. You mentioned Andy a second ago. Right, yeah. He said to me about mortality mathematics being something, and he just threw it in his conversation, but he mentioned you and he said, said oh yeah, because this is like what Pete says about mortality mathematics. And I was like, I've never heard of that. What the heck is that? So, well, so what I thought of it. What's the honour about? Mortality maths is like when you sort of, you figure out that something happened a certain amount of time ago and then something else that happened a certain amount of time before that. An example of mortality maths would be far much more time has elapsed. Kylie Minogue's version of the locomotion and the present day than elapsed between the original one by Little Lever and Kylie's version. More time has now elapsed between the Beatles, the release of Anthology and the present then elapsed between the breakup of the Beatles and Anthology. Mortality <laughs> math is these sorts of uh, mathematical dichotomies that bring home to you the fact that you're accelerating at terrifying speed towards death. <laughs> Yes, and I think he talks about the fact that he'd realised he was in the Paul Weller band longer than Paul Weller was in the jam, I think, was the thing. Or the jam yeah, the jam has yeah. existed, which was really interesting. Yeah. And it comes back to, I think, what we said earlier on about the fact that um, this solo career of Paul's now is 30 years long, which is, which is longer than the jam and the Star Council, probably yeah. times two, actually, thinking about it. so <laughs> Paul will soon be three times as old as he was when he broke up the jam, probably in a few years' time. I'm not sure if I should approach the mortality mathematics with him, how he'll feel about that, I don't know. Probably just kind of with a shrug. The time that's elapsed between that kebab and the back and yeah. leaving all his stuff in your cab is longer yeah. than he was with the Style Council, yeah. You, you mentioned Sonic Kicks and getting invited down to Black Barn and, and hearing a preview before it became the final thing. And I know that Andy talks about this as well, this complexity of that album and how difficult it was to play live. You had a similar conversation with Graham Coxon, I remember, who played on the record again with Paul. He talks about this element of Paul constantly wanting to push boundaries, constantly wanting to try new things and do things differently, which I thought was really interesting because we're still seeing that with On Sunset and Fat Pop that's coming out this year as well. He's got yeah. somebody who wants to stand still. He's constantly just moving on, moving forward. He just seems to derive so much joy in creativity. Now that I think about I, I think 22 Dreams was that was the album where he just basically decided he was just going to keep changing. This was it now. Um, 
and you could either come with him or i mean obviously but you could probably say that about so many sort of releases um you know you, you could say that about the star council's venture in you know assimilation of, of deep house or whatever yeah so there's always been that element to it you are as an artist of a certain age you are expected to sort of stop experimenting at a certain point and to become a, a legacy brand to use a bit of music industry speak. I just think at some point, just Paul was like, no, fuck that, you know, I'm not, I'm just going to keep surprising myself. And I really have a lot of sympathy for that. I, my best friend throughout childhood, who I mentioned in in the book, uh, William, he, um, again, not his real name. Uh, <laughs> I bloody love that name. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we're no longer in touch. When we're in our, sometime in our 20s, I mean, he'd been to university in one part of the country. I'd been to university in another, quite far away. We didn't see each other too much anymore. And I remember having a conversation with him where he was just sort of, he said something like, music will never be as good as it was in the early 80s. You know, the kind of the vanguard, the age of synth pop, new romantics. That was it. You know, it's never going to get that good again. You know, electronic pop, you know, all of that. And he was already starting to get nostalgic about that time. And I remember sort of thinking, yeah, of course I'm nostalgic, but I never want to hear those words come out of my mouth that that it was better then than it is now. You've got to be open to the idea that something new can come along today that doesn't sound like anything that happened before and it might really inspire you. It's really inspirational when your favourite artists from your childhood decide to be like that. Around the time of Sonic Kicks and Wake Up The Nation, you know, when Paul started talking about bands like Broad... You know, he's really... I remember he was really interested in broadcast and the other bands around that scene, people like Pram and, and you know, the boards of Canada that were had sort of emerged from that scene. I just thought that's so great. You know, they're just like... That's kind of what I want him to be doing. You'd see it start to sort of seep in the stuff that he and even like in recent interviews where you know he'll talk about sort of i think jay huss he mentioned or and dave and you know he's just made that pact with himself and i really like people who make that pact with themselves i hopefully i've something i try and do as well and that's the mod that's the kind of a true i think he would say i would imagine that he would say that in the sense of modernism a true modernist would have a duty to assimilate a certain kind of ethos that he sees coming through in new music that is somehow reflective of that aesthetic rigor that the original modernist outlook has and also i think it's back to that point you were making about ultimately he's he's a music fan and he's a collector and it's that love of wanting to, you know, to just get more and discover new things and find new singles and albums, whether that's people who are releasing music now or, or discovering stuff that's been and gone and he, and he maybe missed it at the time. I think that's really interesting. You've yeah. talked a bit about that with your show a while back, um, Vinyl Revival, which was a really interesting series on BBC Six Music. And you had people like Tom Jones and Damon Alburn and Florence from Florence and Machines and mm. Johnny Marr, Ryan Adams, etc. And the final episode, Series One, was Weller was Laura Marling, was um, Norman Cook, Fatboy Slim. That was actually the pilot. That was... Oh, was it? I thought it was the last one. No, no, no. no. I I understand why you would think that, because that was when it was broadcast. But um, they broadcast that after, you know, when the first lot had gone gone quite well and i wanted to mention the pilot because uh, this is another measure of the man really i was trying to get a show a six music to agree to, to give me this show which i thought would work really well at the time because the vinyl revival is still quite a young new thing and i just thought it'd be a great top point at which to have a show like that and they said oh, well okay that's well but we need a pilot we're not just going to let you who you know essentially in whatever polite way they could they were <laughs> like who, who the fuck are you why why should we let you into the studio yeah to make a 
radio show. Go off and make a that, pilot. That sounds like my entire radio career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go off and make a pilot, and then we'll see whether or not we'll give you a series. And the thing about a pilot is you have to do record it like it's a real show, so you have to get some names to show that you're serious. And it's a real measure. And I think, okay, well, this is – if I'm ever going to call in a favour from Paul – and I think I felt like, like maybe I, it was my best ever chance in a way because I think he'd recently someone from his office had got in touch. They'd forgotten to commission a piece for the uh, tour program for Twenty Two Dreams, so they asked me if I'd give my permission for them to just run the the Times piece. I did, you know, the one that ended up with him leaving his luggage in the car. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and I said, sure, yeah, of course, you know, I, maybe I was calling back that favour. I said, look, Paul, they're not going to let me make this show unless I get some proper sort of guests. And I knew that we talked about Laura Marling. I knew as a fan, and I'd interviewed her a few times before, and I knew she was kind of didn't think I was a total prick. So I thought it'd be quite good to have them in the same room as each other. Part of the reason they said yes because he just wanted to meet Laura. She's great. This, she is great. I think absolutely. What a nice thing to do, though. Exactly because it, it was probably at that point it didn't look like it was going to be aired. So so Paul basically took an afternoon off just so that my show had a chance in hell of happening. He didn't have to do that. No one knew that, you know. It was, it was really unbelievably nice of him. There was one little bit I wanted to touch on, which was this love of normality after a tour. So you mentioned being on the tour bus the, fi- the final night of the 22 Dreams. There's a bit where you, you wrote about where you made the remark, I think Bono talks about when you two come off tour, they go into a, ho- <laughs> they go into a hotel to acclimatise for a week or something. Yeah. Like their own hotel, I think, isn't it? And then Paul was, oh, well, F that. I'm, you know, I like getting back to normality. And this what these kind of rock stars are doing with day to day. And obviously, you know, a father of young kids, like I said earlier, I'm sure he's watching Paw Patrol and, you know, and Hey Dougie and all that nonsense. But um, yeah, yeah. that love of kind of just getting back to Sainsbury's for a normal shop was was really lovely, I thought. <laughs> he's, he's, he's almost aggressively normal. I mean, it, it's like you hardly ever encounter it in someone who's that well-known. You almost can't be nervous in his company because he won't allow it. And Paul McCartney has this... I mean, I think it says a lot, actually, that Steve Craddock went from being like a, a fan that kind of hung around outside Solid Bond Studios to being a, the longest standing member of his band. You know, it's he's, he never forgot that that part of you that is a fan. He never forgot that that could have been him. It's not a sad thing to him. It's not a pathetic thing to him to be a, like intensely into someone's music. It's actually the thing that we all have in common. And a lot of fans have said on this podcast, actually, in recent episodes about the fact that... Um, um, like the opening up for sound checks and John Weller letting everybody in for the, you know, to yeah, come and see yeah. the jam before the gigs and signing autographs after the show and just letting the fans in. I think, you know, there's always been that respect for the fans, which has been really lovely. I've, I've literally never heard anyone say, say a bad word about him. I just never, someone at some point, most well known people, most well known musicians, at some point you will have heard someone say, ah, well, he was a bit of an asshole the day that he did that. Never heard anything along those lines about him. Right. So you are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. This can be from any period. Um, so, Star Council Jam. Which one's it going to be? Mm. Shall I give you the second question as well? <laughs> yeah, give me the second while I think about the first. Okay, so the old um, culmination of this podcast, obviously, is the dream to meet Paul Weller at Black Barn and have a conversation and that interview. Is there anything you think I should cover off? I just think, and, and it's not too broad, a, uh, quite a broad term, but in terms of if you want to kind of get him relaxed, I think it just has to be records in the broadest sense if you just start talking about records then one thing will lead to another an entire afternoon will have passed that's what you'll get the most value 
Uh, if you, if, I know it's kind of a boring answer, but it's, no, it's uh, not. It's not. Uh, it's the truth. Will that get me a um, kebab machine invite? <laughs> Dude, does he still? Eat? It looks quite fit these days. I'm not sure if he. Uh, maybe <laughs> maybe he gave up. I think to be honest, I think if you're going to give up booze. You probably yeah. the kebabs are going to go. I think the booze is what unlocks the portal to the kebabs. <laughs> That's so um, true. <laughs> What's the um, song going to be? This might be a bit insulting because it's not necessarily all his work, but um, the Brendan Lynch seven-minute remix of Cosmos. Oh, oh, oh lovely. And if, <laughs> and if and we can't have that, then I'll have, I'll have the the thing that it's the the B side to, which is some plan. Was that one in your DJ set at Ali Pali? That's a probably good one to been, play if you needed a break. <laughs> that's true. I probably would have been too self conscious to have played anything with Paul actually on it. I've just never got bored of it. I just like it. Just takes you to another place. God, I mean, where'd you get? You know, I've got a playlist on Spotify of my favourite Paul Weller songs. I think it's currently about 110 songs, and I don't think I even got around to adding any, anything from On Sunset. You mentioned Sunflower a mm. second ago, and um, that for me is such a great tune. That's such a special tune. I remember I was very early days in my radio career. I was on hospital radio back then. And I, I was doing work experience at the BBC, hoping to kind of get my foot in the door and get up the ladder. And they used to have this huge, big record library, which you'll, and you'll know this, where um, radio stations would just get sent all these records with stickers on, you know, promo copy. And I was in the office one day and they basically said, go through it, sort out. If there's anything you want to, you know, take, help yourself. Wow. And, um, I was in the office one day, the envelope came through and Sunflower, the single, was in it. I was just hugely into Weller. And I was like, and I just remember getting in my terrible white Astra state, whacking the volume right up. And that opening riff just being like, wow, this is heaven. What an absolute belter of a song. I it's love so how good. he got his mojo back. I just love, love, love how he got his, you know, like something was kind of coming to the boil on the Paul Weller movement album. And then Wildwood came out and you just knew it with that song, with that. And, you know, I, I was working for Melody Maker at the time. People were so fucking rude about it. Not everyone, obviously, but there was just so. And I heard this record and I fucking loved it. And I was evangelizing about it to people in the office and they didn't want to hear it. They were just so down on him. They, was, they still sort of hadn't forgiven him for the Star Council because that's the kind of place Melody Maker was at the time. I went to see him do a gig at the Virgin Megastore for Wildwood. It was on the week the Wildwood came out. And I just kind of went straight back to the office and wrote a review of it. And I just handed it to the reviews editor. So this is the best fucking thing I've seen for ages. And he's just, his new songs are brilliant. He's on fire. Something special is happening. And they didn't even run it. <laughs> no. Did it ever get published? No, I don't know where it is. I mean, it's lost. Oh, man. What's the matter with um, people? And I remember seeing him do that, do Sunflower on later. That later performance, I've watched it dozens and dozens of times. It's just there, just on fire, you know. Yeah, like Steve, yeah. God, that Steve on the drums, and just that lovely little thing at the, the, the thing he does on the ride cymbal, which just kind of chugs it all along perfectly. Clearly, he's a man with a point to prove. That album, the gift that keeps giving. Obviously, oh. the only other thing I'd say briefly before I leave you is apparently I'm I am allowed to say this, so I'm going to. The new album is fucking brilliant. And everyone is in for such a treat. It's just tune after tune. It's like his most tunes album. It's just tune after tune after tune. It's just, um, he's just kind of seems to have found a source of low hanging melodic fruit that no one else had noticed prior to now and has come back with a very full and tasty basket. So, um, it's just a very, just makes no demands of the listener whatsoever. I mean, in terms of the fact that the tunes are just so great. He's just found this a bunch of really great tunes there's just a real positivity and brio 
and optimism and energy to to their execution. And uh, and that's all I'm going to say. Wow, that's so exciting. This has been such a blast. Thank you so much, Pete. I really, really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute joy. Patience. People that don't know, this happened in two parts. And, uh, <laughs> and you were waiting for ages, weren't you? You have a life to live, like normal people. Yeah, like you don't. You, your, your children are waiting for their bath. bottle of wine is waiting for you, and you deserve it. Have a brilliant weekend. Oh, you're a star. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye-bye. I absolutely loved that episode. Some of the funniest Weller-related stories you'll ever hear. I promised you an epic Bab Tale too, and I think we delivered. Pete was brilliant. Make sure you check out his fabulous book, Broken Greek. Now, coming soon to the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast, music mogul Alan McGee. Yes, the man who discovered Oasis. He's a massive jam, style council and Weller fan and has some incredible stories to share. We have a series of honorary councillor specials. So if you love the style council, you'll love what we have coming up. Plus, we bring it bang up to date with Stone Foundation's Neil Jones, all coming soon on the podcast. Please share this episode on social media. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify, Amazon, Google or Apple. It really does help us to find new listeners to the show. You can find us on social media. It's at Weller Fan Pod on Twitter or on Facebook and Instagram under Paul Weller Fan Podcast. See you next time. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.